The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Well, question today, what does following Jesus involve. Many of us are following Jesus. Maybe though we're here today and we wouldn't say we were following Jesus. So the question for us is, well, if we do follow Jesus, what is it going to involve? Well, whoever we are in this passage, Jesus holds up to us what it is to be his follower. But before we get to that part, we will see who this Jesus is who we might be thinking or are following. Three headings for us this morning. The first is the king's identity. Who Jesus is has been a key feature, as we might know, in these chapters that we've had so far in John's Gospel, and it's the same today. Uh, We begin in Jerusalem. Am I echoing a bit, or is it okay? Um, We begin in Jerusalem in, in in verse 12. And it's Passover time, and the city is full to overflowing. Those who are in the city, they've heard that Jesus is coming, and so they go out to meet him. And verse 18 tells us why they're going out to meet him. Rumors are spreading that this man, Jesus, who has raised a man called Lazarus from the dead, is God's promised Messiah. God's chosen king, 
That's the rumour. Now, you wouldn't want to be the only person in Jerusalem not to go out and see the Messiah, to miss the Messiah. Oh, no, I was a bit busy. I was sort of uh, a bit busy that day. So, not surprisingly, well, not quite the whole world of verse 19, but certainly verse 13, a big crowd head out to meet Jesus. And as they go, they, they pick up palm branches. Why palm branches? Well, the obvious answer is that they're just by the side of the road. But more than that, they were also a national symbol. So, ideal for waving if you were one of those who were hoping that this Jesus was going to come to Jerusalem and who was going to rid the, Israel, the, the nation of Israel of the occupying Romans. So as they go out, they're, they're singing. They're singing words from Psalm 118. It's a psalm that they sang at the Passover. It looked back to their rescue from Egypt. But it also looks ahead because they knew that one day God's Messiah, promised Messiah, would come to Jerusalem to rescue his people. And that's the excitement, the fervor of that day, because they believe that today is the day that Jesus, God's King, is coming to bring in God's rule. But they've missed something. And it's not just them, it's the disciples too. Verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first. They clearly see the fact that Jesus coming to Jerusalem is significant, and it is. But they've missed. They've missed the significance of the way that he comes. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Jesus is the king. But he isn't coming like conquerors in those days would come. I was trying to find a picture of, of what a sort of conqueror might look like, and this is the best I could come up with. Somebody will tell me afterwards who it is. But conquerors in those days, kings would come in those days with chariots and war horses and great power. And what does Jesus do? He comes on, of all things, a donkey. Why the donkey? Because he was tired? No. No. John tells us why. He came on the donkey. He deliberately rides a donkey because in doing so, he fulfills the prophecy made by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah, back in the Old Testament, prophesied, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord's King, as the crowd have been singing. But they've missed what kind of Messiah he is. They were looking, as we said, for a Messiah to restore the fortunes of Israel and to remove the occupying Romans. That was the expectation. But Jesus isn't the King they expected. Just something for us, if we're following or we're thinking of following this Jesus, well, this is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is God's chosen king. But the mistake they made was that this crowd, they gave up on Jesus, actually, because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. Now, looking back, we can see that Jesus achieved far more 
than they could ever have imagined. He came to bring freedom, not just from the Romans. He came to bring freedom from sin and eternal life. But they rejected him. Why? Because he didn't do what they wanted. And as we know, five days later, this same crowd who at the moment are shouting, Hosanna, save, will be shouting, crucify, crucify. That's where we come in. Because all of us, whoever we are, we, we, we'll have expectations about what we want or think Jesus will do for us. And we need to make sure we don't make the same mistakes as the people of Jesus' day did. The mistake of giving up on Jesus or being tempted to give up on Jesus when he doesn't do what we think he ought to do. Maybe we thought or were told that the Christian life would somehow be a lot easier than it is. That Jesus would solve this problem that is just dominating my life. Well, if that's us, we just need to lift our eyes to see how Jesus fulfills way beyond our immediate concerns, legitimate as they may be, the king's identity. Secondly, the king's death. Now, in stark contrast to those Pharisees, the Pharisees in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, the whole world's gaining nothing, we're gaining nothing, the whole world's gone after him. In contrast to them, we meet some Greeks in verse 20. So verse 20, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Uh, they're probably not from Greece. More likely is that they spoke Greek rather than Aramaic. And they are God-fearers, which is why they've come to worship. And they come looking for Jesus. And I think the sense is that they've come not just to sort of gawp at Jesus, but... They've come to talk seriously with him. And it's interesting, it's the first and last we hear of them. But their arrival is the catalyst for Jesus to make a dramatic announcement. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. It's time uh, Giles reminded of this last week if we were here, that this hour has been a theme in John's Gospel all throughout his record of Jesus' life. And up to now, this hour has always been in the future. So if you remember, we started at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus says to his mother, no, my, my, my time, my hour has not yet come. And then again in, in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, no, no, my hour has not yet come. And here in chapter 12, at last, this hour, this long-awaited hour has come. What is the hour that Jesus has been heading to through all his life and ministry? The hour is the hour of his death. All along, Jesus has been teaching those who would hear that he was heading to his death. It's the hour when the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. It's the hour when, as next week we'll read, verse 32, 33, he'll be lifted on a cross and left to die. But verse 23 doesn't actually say that. Verse 23 says, The hour have come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
That doesn't sound quite right, does it? Death and glory, they don't seem to go together. They seem to be the opposites. The, um, the Royal Lancers, they're a cavalry regiment in the British Army. And they're known as the Death and Glory Boys. Sorry, the Death or Glory Boys. Why is that? Well, their motto is Death or Glory. And that's how we normally think of it, isn't it? It's death or glory. That's the normal choice. But in verse 23 and in verse 28, Jesus says that his death is a time of glory, both for him and for his father. Now, to anyone watching, it wouldn't look like it. I mean, crucifixion was obviously a painful way to die. It's where we get our word excruciating from. But for a Jew, it was also a shameful way to die. Back in the Old Testament, the Jews knew, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So surely Jesus' death was more of a time of shame than glory. We've been thinking about glory already this morning. Well, the word glory has its origins in weight or heaviness. So to glorify, which is the word we've got in verse 23, means to give weight to to honour, to praise. Now, I don't know what we'd normally think of that gives us cause to glorify God. Maybe it's when we look at creation. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Yeah, fine. Or maybe as, as God defeats his enemies. So, Exodus 14, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh. To our minds... God's glory isn't normally associated, is it, with signs of weakness and shame and death. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. There's nothing seemingly glorious about a little, many of us will have sown seeds recently, a little grain of wheat going into the ground and dying. And yet Jesus, dying on a cross, like a grain of wheat, seemingly in shame, tells us that this is a time of glory. And it isn't that the weakness and the shame come first, and then the glory afterwards, as if the cross is the bad bit, and then we have to sort of scurry through that and get to the resurrection and the ascension. And of course, to be sure, Jesus is glorified in his, his resurrection and ascension. And it's also true that the death of Jesus achieves so much that later brings him glory. So verse 24, the death of Jesus bears much fruit. If you think about it, we wouldn't be here today singing and praising Jesus if he hadn't gone through the cross. And of course the cross brings glory later to Jesus. But here's the key thing. Jesus' glory isn't put on hold, if you like, at the cross. Glory doesn't just come later. Someone put it like this. Jesus' death was itself the supreme manifestation of his glory. And it isn't that the, the death of Jesus could add to his intrinsic glory. Jesus is always glorious. But if you like, what his death did do is to open our eyes to see more of who he is. Uh, we've got a slide, I think, of, a, of, of light going through a, a prism. And 
share my scientific ignorance here, but anyway, apparently if you shine light through a uh, rectangular prism, then what happens is, triangular, not rectangular, there we go, triangular prism, then what you see is you see the light separating out into all its components. And it looks glorious. The light is always glorious. But seeing it through the prism helps us to see the glory of the light. And so with the cross, in the very moment of Jesus' death, we really see who God is. We really see the loving heart of God, willing to sacrifice himself for people like you and people like me. Uh, John Calvin, who's a French theologian, put it like this. He said, For in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theatre, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed on all creatures, on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. So what? Well, maybe we're here and I say wondering what Christianity is all about. Maybe we're trying to understand who God is and what he's like. Well, can I suggest rather than sort of looking out there to try to find God, this is the place to start. It's very weird, isn't it, to think about a, gro a gruesome death. But that's actually where we need to start, to understand the heart of God, what God is like and what he's doing. And for those of us who are following Jesus, it, it's why we should never tire of hearing the old, old stories. This song is it, tell me the old, old story. We should never tire of hearing the old, old story of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, a wonderful transaction took place. Our sins were removed. But if we see the cross purely as a place of transaction, where our sins disappear, well then we miss so much because we miss seeing more of the glory of God. We were reminded of the chief end of man this morning. What is it? It is to glorify God. Where do we see that most fully? At the cross. So if we're followers of Jesus and we're hearing going to be another talk on the cross, don't tire of hearing the old, old story. Because that's how we see more of the glory of Jesus. The king's identity. The king's death, thirdly. The king's followers. So who is the Jesus that we're to follow? Well, we found out he's, he's God's chosen king who reveals his glory as he dies. So back to that question at the start. What does following Jesus then involve? Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. Something of a shock, isn't it? Hating life? Really? Hasn't Jesus come to, to bring life abundant? Jesus is using a Hebrew figure of speech. And it's a, a figure of speech where alternatives are presented, uh, not in absolute terms, 
but as a way of highlighting, if you like, a fundamental preference. We have a choice. On the one hand, we can love our life. And that means clinging to our life. But it's clinging to a life without reference to God. To love one's life means to keep it for oneself, serving one's own self-interest. The result of such love, verse 25, losing it. Uh, Don Carson, who is a a biblical scholar, uh, put it like this. It, and what he means, what what he's talking about it there, is losing life. Losing life, it, it couldn't be otherwise. For to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights. And it's a brazen elevation of self, which is the heart of all sin. That's one choice, that's one option, one side. The the alternative, verse 25, we can hate our life. It's not a literal hatred of all things in our life. It's the opposite of self-centeredness. It's choosing not to pander to self-interest. It's hating in the sense of being willing to give it up in self-sacrifice, in stepping off the throne of our lives. The result? Verse 25. Keeping it for eternal life. Eternal life which starts now. And that's the choice. It's either or. Which are we? The follower of Jesus is the second one. The follower of Jesus is the one who hates their life in this world and keeps it for eternal life. We might look at that and think, but that's not me. That's for the super-Christians, isn't it? But there are no super-Christians. This is for all followers of Jesus, because this is the Christian life from beginning to end. When I begin to follow Jesus, what happens? For those of us who can remember a moment, it it was when we turned back from relying on ourselves, we said no to self. But we didn't just stop there, we didn't just say no to self, we said yes to Jesus. We were joined to Jesus. The commonest description, I think, of a Christian in the New Testament is not servant, doer, worker. It is somebody who is in Christ. And if I am a Christian, if I am a follower of Jesus, then that's who I am. I am in Christ. That's my identity. It's how I started and it's how I go on. And I think we sometimes go wrong, or where we sometimes go wrong, is that we think of discipleship purely in terms of what we do. If you like, we measure discipleship by activity rather than identity. Now, to be sure, discipleship is seen in activity. Of course, a follower of Jesus is going to be involved in all sorts of means of service. But that's the outworking, not the essence of discipleship. 
I may have got this wrong and tell me afterwards, but I think this is what lies behind verse 26. Verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. You see, I think naturally we'd have put that the other way around. Because I think naturally we would think that if we're going to follow Jesus, then we must serve him. As if serving is the key thing, as if serving is the must. But Jesus says that if we're to serve him, we must follow him. The following is the must. Joining him, finding my identity in him, that's the must. That's how I begin the Christian life. And it's how I go on, identifying with him in a life of self-sacrificial service. What does that look like? Well, I guess we might have looked at verse 25 and hating our life and taken a deep breath and thought, okay, well, what in my life have I now got to do less of, have less of, do more of? Is it my time? Is it my money? Is it my possessions? There are quite a few my's in that question, aren't there? My time, my money, my possessions. Can I suggest that the place to begin is with our identity. If my life is tied up with Christ, then perhaps I should be asking this. What would Jesus be doing with the gifts and talents and abilities and time and money and possessions that are entrusted to me? Or ask this, how can I be God's person in this place with the people that I meet or hear about today. Maybe that sounds a bit vague. How in practice do we go about doing that? Well, whatever we end up doing, whatever activity we end up in, surely it starts with an attitude. And it starts with the attitude of the Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. An attitude of giving, not getting. The Apostle Paul writes to these young Christians at Philippi, how are they going to go on in their Christian life? And, and he says to them this, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And he goes on, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, look at that in practice, we don't have to go too far, do we? to find others whose interests we can look to. They'll be in our class at school this coming week. They'll be in the office. They'll be at home. They'll be sitting next to us in church. What's the attitude? It's giving, isn't it, not getting? It's not, what can I get from them? But what can I give? It's maybe asking, what do they need? Maybe asking ourselves, how can I be God's person to this other today? I think one uh, Christian understood discipleship, uh, apparently, when they said, they, they used to say to themselves or talk, talk to the Lord at the beginning of each day, and they used to say, what are we going to do today, Lord? Such a life like that is risky. It's very risky. 
because it'll take me to people and places and situations that are out of my usual comfort zone. It might take me to spend time with that rather irritating but clearly lonely girl at school. It might take me to offer comfort to that gossip in the office that nobody really wants to spend time with. It might take me to use my resources to support people in places I've never been to. It's risky, isn't it? And it's costly. Looking to the interests of others is costly. It doesn't come easy. We just love ourselves. Uh, Mel Brooks is a, an actor and filmmaker. And this is the title of his autobiography. It's all about me. Now, to be fair, it's an autobiography, so in a sense, you sort of, you know, you've got to give him a bit of leeway, but that's it. Uh, maybe we've been given a journal to, to keep up, and here we go. And it's, yes, it's all about me. And that's us. It is all about me. It's so hard, isn't it? Do you know, I am the most important person that I know. I know the definition of a minor operation, and it's one performed on someone else. I am the most important person. <laughs> and it's going to be costly if I'm going to look to your interests rather than mine. Falling into the ground to die is no pastime, said somebody, for a healthy-looking grain of wheat like me. It's going to be costly to our reputation. Spending time with that unpopular boy at school or that office weirdo is not going to do much for our image amongst those we're trying to impress. Self-sacrifice is going to be costly in so many ways. It hits those things we just naturally want to hold on to. Time, money, possessions, all affected. It's almost bound to involve needing to have less of, do less of, do more of. It was costly for Jesus and it'll be costly for us. And in some parts of the world, uniting with Jesus, living with him, is supremely costly. It's risky. It's costly. But it's attractive. In a world that's obsessed with self and selfies, isn't there something outstandingly attractive about somebody who is living a life that is for other people. I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that part of what drew me to begin to follow Jesus was seeing the life of a friend who understood what hating his life in this world was about, how he began to live for other people, and it was a magnet. I know it's a cliche, but, but you know, I wanted to know what he'd got because it was so attractive. His life was attractive and it was fruitful. It's attractive, do you know, and it's also liberating. Remembering my identity in Christ is liberating because it, it just reminds me that in the end, it's not all about me. That is not going to be the title of our autobiography. You can have a think about what the title of your autobiography is going to be. But you see, the pressure is off. The pressure to create the perfect image. To have so many likes on our, whatever it is we've got on social media. 
It's such a relief. It frees me to be the person Jesus wants me to be, not the person I think society wants me to be. I don't know if you've done all your Christmas shopping yet. There's a suggestion coming up on the screen. Uh, superb little book. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a small book. Um, if you haven't read it, I suggest buy it and then get somebody to give it to you uh, as a Christmas present. And it does exactly what it says on the front. And it just describes the wonderful freedom of being able to, if you like, forget ourselves. It's attractive. <laughs> this life, it's attractive, it's liberating, and you know, it's so rewarding. I don't know if you spotted in these verses, the self-sacrificing followers of Jesus, they don't lose out. Did you notice what they receive? Verse 25. Eternal life, as I said, that begins now with a life abundant and goes on to eternity. Verse 26. The, the, the follower of Jesus has the presence of Jesus, the companionship of Jesus. And verse 26 is honoured by, I don't know who you want to be honoured by, who it's nice to be honoured by, the mayor, fantastic, your boss, wonderful, God the Father. Can you think of a reward greater than that? So as we finish then, this is what the Christian life involves. This is what following Jesus involves. If we're looking in on the Christian life, isn't this the life that we want? Actually, it's the life we've got to have because the alternative doesn't bear thinking about. Is it worth it? There's a, uh, an American missionary called Jim Elliott who uh, gave his life in the end by going to the uh, Alka Indians in South America. And before he went, he said this, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to save what he cannot lose if we're wondering about starting to follow Jesus. Uh, there are one two booklets uh, just outside on the sort of bench over on the far side. Do grab one of those. If we're not sure what it means to start following Jesus, if this is for you, pick one of these up, please do. For those of us who are following Jesus, I wonder how we've got on this, got on this morning. As we looked at that mirror, if you like, of true discipleship, what have we felt? Well, I suspect... Maybe like me, we're just all too aware of how much self still drives what we think and what we do. Well, for us, we need to come back to verse 23. We need to come back to the old, old story. We need to remember why Jesus came. And he came because he came to forgive sins. This sin that you and I commit. So we need to praise him again, don't we, for taking our sin and to ask him that we would have the strength to live as he would have us live, as he lived. Let's pray. Our Father, you know our hearts. And our prayer this morning is that you would melt them again. We pray that you would make them more like the heart of the Lord Jesus. 
And we pray that we might then live for him as he would have us live. And we ask it for his sake.